Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number two, Deuteronomy chapter one. Last week, we looked at an introduction to Deuteronomy in order to give us some context for studying it. Now make no mistake, the foundation for correctly interpreting this fifth book of the Torah are the previous four. Okay. Each builds upon the other. However, in general, we need to view Deuteronomy as a sermon on the law. Okay. And I drew a parallel for you last week to the Sermon on the Mount, which was Yeshua's sermon about the law. Okay. Now, Deuteronomy picks up the journey of Israel when they're in Moab with Moses giving his final addresses to the people of Israel. And the three addresses he'll give will interlace history and law. And as, as we're going to see quite often, the precise facts of certain incidents that happened during that 40-year wilderness trek are not presented by Moses in, in, in the same mold, necessarily, as we read them in the earlier Torah books, because he's presenting them in the light of hindsight. So as we begin reading the first chapter of Deuteronomy, see if you can picture Moses as he stands up on a high hill in Moab overlooking the promised land that sits just a stone's throw away on the west bank of the Jordan. And he's addressing the leaders and elders of Israel, even though his words are intended for all Israel to hear. Because indeed, there's no practical way his voice could have been heard by more than a few hundred, maybe a couple of thousand people at best. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 1 and get started. Deuteronomy chapter 1, page 196, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel on the far side of the Jordan River in the desert in the Arabah across from Suf between Paran and Tophel, Levan, Hetzrot, and Dishav. It is 11 days journey from Orev to Kadesh Barnea by way of Mount Seir. And on the first day of the 11th month of the 40th year, Moses spoke to the people of Israel reviewing everything Adonai had ordered him to tell them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amori, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in uh, Ashtarot at uh, Edrie. And there beyond the Yarden in the land of Moab, Moshe took it upon himself to expound this Torah and said, Adonai spoke to us in Horeb, and he said, You've lived long enough by this mountain. Turn, get moving, go to the hill country of the Amorites and all the places near there in the Arabah, the hill country, the Sheflah, the Negev, and by the seashore, the land of the Canaanites and the, 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 and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates River. I have set the land before you. Go in. Take possession of the land Adonai swore to give your ancestors Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and their descendants after them. At that time I told you, you're too heavy of a burden for me to carry alone. Adonai, your God, has multiplied your numbers so that there are as many of you today as there are stars in the sky. May Adonai, the God of your ancestors, increase you yet a thousandfold and bless you as he's promised you. But you are burdensome, bothersome, quarrelsome. How can I bear it by myself alone? Pick for yourselves from each of your tribes men who are wise, understanding, knowledgeable. I will make them heads over you. You answered me. What you have said would be a good thing for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, men wise and knowledgeable, and made them heads over you, leaders in charge of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and officers, tribe 
by tribe. At that time I commissioned your judges. Hear the cases that arise between your brothers and judge fairly between a man and his brother and the foreigner who is with him. You are not to show favoritism when judging, but give equal attention to the small and the great. No matter how a person presents himself, don't be afraid of him because the decision is God's. The case that's too hard for you, bring to me and I will hear it. I also gave you orders at that time concerning all the things you were to do. So we left Horeb and we went through all that vast and fearsome desert which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as Adonai your God ordered us, and we arrived at Kadesh Barnea. And there you said, You have come to the hill country of the, of the Amorites, which Adonai our God is giving to us. Look, Adonai your God has placed the land before you. Go up! Take possession! As Adonai, the God of your ancestors, has told you, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. You approached me, every one of you. And you said, let's send men ahead of us to explore the country for us. And bring back word concerning what route we should use in going up and what cities we will encounter, what they're like. And the idea seemed good to me. So I took twelve of your men, one from each tribe, and they set out. They went up into the hills. They came to the Eshkol Valley, and they reconnoitered it. They took some of the produce of the land. They brought it down to us. They also brought back word to us. The land that and I are God is giving us is good. But you wouldn't go up. Instead, you rebelled against the order of Adonai, your God, and in your tent you complained. It's because Adonai hated us that he brought us out of the land of Egypt only to hand us over to the Amorites to destroy us. What sort of place is it that we're heading for? Our brothers made our courage fail when they said, well, the people are bigger, bigger and taller than we are. The cities are great. They're fortified up to the skies. Finally, we've seen the Anakim there. And I answered you, don't be fearful. Don't be afraid of them. Adonai, your God, who's going ahead of you, will fight on your behalf, just as he accomplished all of those things for you in Egypt before your eyes, and likewise in the desert, where you saw how Adonai, your God, carried you, like a man carries his child along the entire way you traveled till you arrived at this place. Yet in this matter, you don't trust Adonai, your God, even though he went ahead of you, seeking out places for you to pitch your tents, showing you which way to go by fire at night and by a cloud during the day. Adonai heard what you were saying, and he became angry and he swore, not a single one of these people, this whole evil generation, will see the good land I swore to give to your ancestors, except Caleb, the son of Yefune. He will see it. I will give him and his descendants the land he walked on because he has fully followed Adonai. Also because of your of, uh, of you, Adonai was angry with me. And he said, you too will not go in there. Yahushua, the son of Nun, your assistant, he will go in there. So encourage him because he will enable Israel to take possession of it. Moreover, your little ones who you said would be taken as booty, and your children who don't yet know good from bad, they will go in there. I will give it to them. They will have possession of it. But as for yourselves, turn around and head into the desert by the road to the Sea of Suf. Then you answered me, oh, we've sinned against Adonai. Now we will go up and fight. In accordance with everything Adonai our God has ordered us, and every man among you put on his arms, uh, considering it an easy matter to go up into the hill country. But Adonai said to me, Tell them, don't go up, don't fight, because I'm not there with you. If you do, your enemies will defeat you. So I told you, but you wouldn't listen. Instead, you rebelled against Adonai's orders, you took matters into your own hands, and you went up into the hill country where the Amorites living in that hill country came out against you like bees. They defeated you and Seir chased you all the way back to Hormah. You returned and cried before Adonai, but Adonai neither listened to what you said nor paid you any attention. This is why you had to stay in Kadesh as long as you did.
That was a pretty good talking to, wasn't it? I'm going to take about five minutes to explain a very interesting phenomenon that appears in the first five verses of Deuteronomy. Because it also appears at the beginning of every single one of the five books of Torah. And the phenomenon is this. There is a repeating pattern of Hebrew letters that spells out the word Torah in a fixed sequence within the first five verses of Deuteronomy. Beginning with the Hebrew letter He, that is the last letter of Moshe's name, and then counting 48 letters, we come to the Hebrew letter Resh. 48 more letters, we get a Vav. 48 more letters, we get a Tav. We have Torah spelled backwards. Now, this wouldn't be too surprising if it wasn't that we see a similar pattern at the beginning of the four books of Torah that comes before Deuteronomy. In Genesis 1, 1 through 5, we find a repeating pattern of the word Torah spelled forwards, with each letter formed and spaced exactly 49 letters apart, starting with the final Hebrew letter of the word in the beginning, Bereshit, and then counting every 49th letter, we get the word Torah spelled out. The exact same thing happens in Exodus 1, 1 through 6, starting with the final letter of the second word, Shmot. All right, in the opening phrase, these are the names. We get the Hebrew letter Tav, then 49 more letters, we get a Vav, then 49 more letters, and we get a Resh, then 49 more letters, and we get a He, which forms the word Torah. In Leviticus, it shifts a little bit. In Leviticus, the priestly book, we get the, uh, we get the divine name Yehoveh, spelled out with the letters yud Hey vav Hey, precisely seven letters apart. Beginning with the Yud and the first word of Leviticus, and he summoned, and then counting every seventh letter, we get God's name, Yehovah. When we go to Numbers, we get, like in Deuteronomy, the word Torah spelled backwards and in an exact interval. Beginning here with the first occurrence of the word Moses in Numbers, we get a He, the last letter of Moses' name, then count 49 letters, we get a Resh, 49 more, a Vav, 49 more, a Tav, Torah spelled in reverse. But then we see another pattern. Beginning in Genesis, we have Torah spelled forwards. In Exodus, Torah spelled forwards. In Leviticus, God's name. Then Numbers, Torah spelled backwards. Then Deuteronomy, Torah spelled backwards. Kind of interesting. The 49-letter spacing is because it is seven times seven. Of course, that's the divine number of God. Seven would be the spacing of letters in God's name. And Leviticus is also quite astounding. But then the question comes, so why is the spacing in Deuteronomy one less than 49? Why is the spacing of the letters of the word Torah 48 letters apart, not 49? I'll give you my opinion. I'd like you to consider it, but it's just an opinion. Okay. Deuteronomy is different than the first four books in that it's a sermon of Moses. The first four books consist to one degree or another of direct oracles from God that are prefaced with words like, and the Lord said, and thus and so. Okay. Here in Deuteronomy, it's different. This is about Moses says thus and so. Yes, Moses is God's mediator. And he speaks for God. But Moses is not God. Okay. Therefore, the value of what Moses' Torah, Moses' instructions is, as compared to the value of what God's Torah, God's instructions is, is less. Precisely one less. Now we've all heard something about a Bible code. 
Alright, and there's no doubt that what I presented to you is not simply a mathematical anomaly or coincidence. It's not an accident. It was intentionally put there. So I am one who sees some degree of validity to a Bible code. But where I part company is when all manner of letter sequences and letters found in diagonals and so on are, are said to form a Bible code that tells us the future. Okay, With the enormous numbers of words and letters in the entire Bible, there's no doubt that one could find spurious patterns if one looked hard enough, but I don't necessarily see them as divine. On the other hand, what I've just presented to you is logical, rational, and miraculous, completely in line with God's principles. Further, and now this is from a practical standpoint, by incorporating this underlying pattern of letters and words, copyist mistakes and redactions and forgeries could be spotted rather easily. Okay, because a misspelling or a missing word or a rearranged sentence would ruin the precise letter sequence and number count. I see the amazing pattern that has been embedded in the first five verses of the opening of every single one of the first five books of Torah as God's guarantee to us and a kind of ancient spell check that it was indeed the great I Am who gave this Bible to us and that it's valid and it's been handed down to us accurately. Now, thankfully, getting into Deuteronomy now a little more, the wandering is over. The people of Israel are near to possessing the promised land that has been officially set aside for them in the covenant of Abraham six centuries earlier. But the possession of the land is not going to come peacefully. That 600,000 man Hebrew army is not going to go on furlough. They are going to take that land by force from a number of different petty potentates and mighty kings and kingdoms who, when taken together in a general term, are called Canaanites simply because they live in a general region known as Canaan. None of these people have any intention of simply turning their territory over to Israel just because they claim that their God has given it to them as their own. Now this address by Moses is apparently made upon his own volition. Certainly as God's mediator, it is his place to address the people of God as he sees fit, as it was ordained back at the burning bush, that whatever Moses spoke, it was as if God spoke it. Let's immediately address a couple of issues. First is this matter, is that what we are getting from Moses is not an oracle from the Father. At first blush, that might be a little unnerving. But in, in fact, the vast bulk of the Bible consists not of direct oracles from Jehovah, but rather it consists of history and stories and poems and songs and progressive revelation and much commentary about the Lord and his commandments. See, an oracle is a direct and unequivocal divine statement directly attributed to the mouth of the named deity. In the Bible, the most direct oracles from God are in the Torah, and there are those laws given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The next most direct oracles come from God's Messiah, Yeshua, in the New Testament. But even the bulk of these New Testament oracles are but repeats and reminders of what God spoke through his Old Testament prophets or they're an exegesis of the law as given years ago. Okay. Of course, where most believers get tripped up is that they think that what Yeshua offered and spoke was brand new because they've neither read nor been taught the Torah or the Old Testament. 
Now, it's rather easy to know when we encounter a divine oracle as opposed to something else, because divine oracle usually begins with the words, Then God said, or Yehovah told Moses, or something along those lines. In other words, the name of God was invoked as the one who has ordained that such and such was to occur, or that a new law, for instance, had been enacted. Now, we rightly assume that Jesus' words are an oracle because he claims to be God, which is, of course, the entire basis of our Christianity. Yet we cannot help but notice that there is a difference in how God the Father, or the Word in the form of the Spirit of God, presents his divine oracle in the Torah in comparison to how Yeshua spoke it in the New Testament. Because for Yeshua in this, who is this inscrutable hybrid of man and God, high priest and mediator, commoner and king, so even though it is, it is generally painted that in the church, we say that Jesus abolished the old law and gave mankind a new one, even he plainly states in Matthew 5, 17-19 that this was not the case. Rather, Yeshua went about separating God's laws as given to Moses from traditions that men had developed over the centuries about those laws. Traditions that had become the basis of Judaism and much of it wrong-minded. And were often set against the spirit of the Torah. And Messiah also explained and expounded on the divinely intended meaning of those laws of Moses. And how many of the words of the prophets concerning the coming Messiah, now present, standing before them, were fulfilled in him. The point is that Moses here in Deuteronomy is most definitely speaking as God's official mediator, but Moses is using his own words, inspired as they are, and is making these addresses not because these are new oracles, for the most part, coming from God, but because Moses has decided this is needed at this point. Most of Moses' words are a recounting of the wilderness journey and its lengthy explanations of how the law for this new generation of Hebrews, most of whom were either small children or as yet even unborn when Moses first received the law almost 40 years earlier, earlier how they should apply these laws and the, the new settled condition that they're about to find themselves in. Much of the time, Christ is also speaking as God's mediator, although at a higher mediator than Moses. And so he does not say that he's invoking new laws or changing old laws either. The second issue I'd like to address concerns the so-called holy war that Israel is about to begin for the conquest for the land of Canaan. Now we have to be careful not to get sucked into a debate or defense that the current so-called holy war of, uh, of the Muslims against the world, called jihad, is the same kind of thing that God ordained in the Torah regarding the taking of Canaan. Okay, This is one of those many instances when the meaning of a small phrase changes over the years and takes on a different context. But that small change in meaning can have very large consequences. I have heard Muslim spokesmen, news commentators, journalists, and even a few pastors discuss the Muslim holy war as being comparable to the Old Testament holy war of Moses and Joshua upon Canaan. Now the difference between the two is night and day. Islamic jihad is about forcibly converting the world to their religion. Is it not? It's about an army of Muslims violently establishing a worldwide caliphate. That is, a one-world Islamic theocracy. That's their goal. It is about killing those who choose not to convert 
as a direct instruction from the Koran, although the Koran does seem to give somewhat of an out to Jews and Christians who might have their lives spared if they'll agree to be ruled by Islam and submit to the Islamic government. Now, there is no thought in the Torah of conquering Canaan in order to spread the religion of the Hebrews to foreigners. There's no thought of that. See, this coming holy war of Canaan is not about converting those of the pagan Canaanite religions to the worship of Yehovah and killing the holdouts. Rather, it's a war over land. A very specifically called out piece of land. In fact, Moses carefully recounts in coming verses how the Israelites avoided conflict with the Edomites and Moabites wherever possible because these Gentiles rightfully owned the land they possessed since the Lord had set it aside for them and assigned it to them. I mean, does that surprise you that God has set aside certain territory for Gentiles, non-Israelites, and then enforces their right to keep it? Well, it really shouldn't. Although we call him the God of Israel, Jehovah makes it plain he's the God of everyone and everything. Okay, That his reign is supreme over the earth, the universe, and beyond. So, of course, he has predetermined who shall live where, when, under what circumstances, and so forth. And that includes Gentiles and Hebrews. The place he assigned for the Hebrews was Canaan. So we must never fall prey to that specious argument that what Islam is currently doing is somehow akin to what the Hebrews were to do as they conquered Canaan. Nor should we imagine terrorism or the terrorist purpose and mindset as being akin to the Old Testament conquering of Canaan. God's only earthly kingdom was to be within the well-defined boundaries of what was currently on record as being the land of Canaan and not beyond it. There was no command to convert the Canaanites. Nor was there a command to commit genocide upon them, as is so popularly taught. The goal was for the Gentiles of Canaan to be driven out Only those who chose to stay and fight to the death rather than leave were subject to being killed. Now hear me please. In perhaps the oddest irony, it is not the Old Testament God who says to Canaan and other foreigners, convert or die, as so many misinformed Christians think and is frankly at the core of much Christian opinion on the Old Testament, the law, and the Jewish people. Rather, the only God-directed convert-or-die scenario in the Bible is in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus Christ is leading the saints in holy war, usually called Armageddon, in which the only people who are allowed to remain alive on the face of this planet are those who accept Yeshua as Lord and Master. Armageddon is a battle for the entire earth, not just a little sliver of land called Canaan. This is nowhere for those who are against the Lord to move to. Okay, Moses, for a short time, and then his protege, Yahushua, Joshua, would lead God's people in battle for an earthly kingdom located in a very specific place. Yeshua has instructed us, his protégés, if you would, to lead God's people in a battle for a spiritual kingdom. Joshua, his given name being Yahushua, would lead a battle using spears and swords. Jesus, his given name being Yahushua, 
has instructed us to put down our spears and swords and to lead a battle using primarily our faith, the gospel truth, and our loving deeds. Yet when Yeshua returns, he is going to fight a bloody physical war just as Moses and Joshua were about to do. One more thing about holy war. And I do this because it's at the core of why the Old Testament is so maligned and our New Testament so misunderstood. A holy war is not one that is led in the name of God. It's one that is led by God. Major difference. That is, it is made clear in the Torah that God God has gone ahead of Moses and Joshua to defeat those whom are intended to be defeated. That in essence, all that's left for Israel to do in holy war is to come in and pick up the pieces. God would deliver the enemy into their hands. It's made clear that God is the supreme commander of the Israeli military. And it's also made clear that this holy war is, is, is ordained by direct oracle from God. It is not at the choice of Moses or Israel. One of the characteristics of this, uh, of true biblical holy war is that the law of harem is in place. Now the law of harem says that the captured booty is to be destroyed. And this is because since the Lord is the supreme commander, it all belongs to him. In Hebrew thinking, the Lord God is quite literally a warrior. Destruction of the booty is a sacrifice to the supreme commander, Yehovah, because biblical holy war has little to do with material gain. Okay. So biblical holy war, of the Old Testament kind anyway, is not a war whose purpose was religious conversion, nor of the extraction of riches and tributes from the vanquished, nor was it about enslaving an enemy. It is also not a war to determine who wins. The outcome had already been decided. However, usually when we see so-called holy wars fought in the name of God, even though there's absolutely no oracle from God to start such a thing, these wars are of an entirely different character than those holy wars led by God. Those fought in the name of God, they do look like Islamic Jihad. They are at times about forced conversions enslavement, the taking of booty and paying of tribute by the enemy, the Crusades being such an endeavor, the Inquisition another. In verse 3 of the first chapter of Deuteronomy, we get the only date given to us in the book. It was the first day of the 11th month of the 40th year that this particular address of Moses is being given. Now, Just to be clear, this does not mean that it has been 40 years and 11 months since they left Egypt. The way the Bible counts years, and so does archaeology, by the way, is that year one begins on the first day and ends on the last day of the 11th month. So when Israel was gone from Egypt for, say, three months, it would have been called the third month of the first year. Because there's no such thing as a year called zero. Therefore, what we're being told is that Israel has been gone from Egypt for 39 years and 11 months. One more month, and it will be 40 years exactly. One more month after that, and it will be the 41st year. And we know that the wars with Midian and the Amorites are behind them because verse 4 speaks about the defeat of Sihon and Og. So we got a very good marker in time to start out the book of Deuteronomy. Now beginning in verse 6 is a retrospective on the journey through the wilderness. It includes a 
reminder of the mighty acts that God performed in order that Israel would see him as their God. Now, not surprisingly, it begins with the first part of the journey and therefore is speaking not about the people of the generation of Israel who are now standing before Moses up on that hill in Moab, but rather about that first generation of the Exodus, the previous generation to the one that he's now addressing. Okay, And they're all now dead and gone. And Moses reminds them that Israel was told by God in a rather impatient manner, it's time to leave Sinai. Come on, get going. Move. Move on towards that promised land that I had so long prepared for you. The point that was not lost on this new generation of Israelites is that they could have been born inside that land of milk and honey. Instead of inside of a goat skin tent on a dusty trail next to a desert oasis, if only their parents had been obedient. Israel should have already been settled in Canaan enjoying the fruits of the land some 38 or so years earlier. I mean, let not you and I lose the point of this as it applies directly to us and our reluctance to lay hold of the victories that God has already given us. But he expects us to go forward and claim them in deed and action, not just word. Israel was basically, spiritually and physically dormant for 40 years because they lacked faith. They marched in circles, marking time, merely existing. They weren't any closer to the promised land in year 40 than what they were barely over a year after they left Egypt. 38 years earlier, rather than entering into the promised land as the Lord bid them, they said, no thanks, looks a little scary to me. I think we'll just kind of march on back to our previous lives in Egypt. You see, the problem was that that first generation believed in God. They just didn't trust him. They constantly irritated Moses and Jehovah by asking the rhetorical question, Oh, why did God bring us out here in the wilderness just to die? They knew who Jehovah was. They believed he existed. They believed he was their God. But they didn't trust in his ability to care for them or his determination to protect and guide them. And so it took Israel 40 years to gain what they could have had so much earlier. James, brother of Jesus, puts this in another way. In the New Testament, in James 2.19, he says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe. And they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? See, this God principle of passive faith versus, versus active faithfulness remains. Acceptance of redemption is one thing. Acting on the obligations you now have to God as a redeemed person and on the commands of God that are really only for the redeemed anyway, that's a whole nother thing. Israel was redeemed, remember this, major point applies to every one of us, Israel was redeemed before he gave them his law. But even as a redeemed people, they were utterly useless to the the Lord, to his kingdom, to his purposes for them until they were ready to trust God and then act on that trust. I can't stress enough that our current modern passive attitude in Christianity is wrong and it's powerless. Our doctrines have literally turned the God principle expressed here on its head. We have made our acceptance of God's redemption, our salvation, as the first and last 
obligation or act of obedience to the Lord that's needed or required in our walk with him. No, no, no. First, we accept our redemption. And as Paul says, that isn't really to be considered an act or a work or a good deed on our part. And once that happens, now we're expected to act upon our trust in the Lord. And guess what happens if we don't act? We're basically put into a state of dormancy. Want to get saved and then go into suspended animation? Fine. The Lord has a name for that. Rebellion. You know, when we're redeemed and then given knowledge that every last redeemed person has obligations to meet now, and every person has a purpose for being elected to the kingdom, not to pursue those obligations is disobedience. Do you, do you wonder why you've been a Christian for maybe 10 or 20 or more years and you don't seem to be much further in your walk than when you first were saved? Do you feel like you, you're walking in circles like the Israelites and you know in your heart that there really isn't any noticeable difference between you and the world? Then I have a question for you. What are you doing? What are you doing? If you're not doing according to God's will, then you're exactly where Israel was for 40 years. If you don't trust God and insist on sitting on those sidelines, that's disobedience. You're wandering and God is waiting. And He can wait a lot longer than you can wander. But oh, how miserable (laughs) is our condition when we choose that route. Oh man, how miserable were those Israelites who couldn't grasp that believing in God is not the same thing as trusting God sufficiently enough to live it out. And redemption is not a good work of man. Redemption was then and is still today a good work of God. Our good works are what happens after that redemption. And without those good works, as James says, our faith is just a dead faith. It's useless. In verses 6 and 7, Moses calls out the areas of land that Israel is supposed to take. First mentioned is the hill country of the Amorites. And this is key to our understanding in our day and age especially. Right in this area here. That's almost precisely what we today call the West Bank. And of course, wouldn't you just know that the so-called Palestinians claim this land and say the Jews have no right to it. The hill country of the Amorites is mentioned first because it's going to become the heartland of Israel. Even after the time of King Solomon, when Israel split into two kingdoms, Ephraim, Israel to the north and Judah to the south, this hill country will overlap into both kingdoms. It is mountainous, mountainous, mild in climate, fertile, it has good water available. And when the Lord speaks of the mountains of Israel, we hear so often in the Bible, the mountains in Israel, it's the West Bank that's being described. Next is the land of the Arabah, which is mostly north of the Dead Sea. Okay, It includes the Jordan Valley and the hills that surround it. It's another highly rich, fertile, and beautiful area. The Shephelah is that area of the land we might might, might kind of determine, uh, rather, um, call the, the foothills. Kind of like foothills right in here. And it's important because this land contained vital ports right, and harbors that allowed trade and travel uh, by means of sea routes to the islands of the Mediterranean and south to the African continent right, and then north on up to the areas of Turkey. The Negev is also included in the promised land. And by the way, please don't call this the Negev. Okay, there's no soft G Sounds sounds like a J in Hebrew. All the G sounds are hard G's like in goat. 
Okay, so it's pronounced Negev. The Negev is is generally an area south of the mountainous regions. All right, it goes all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. It's mostly desert. It's where Beersheba and Kadesh Barnea are located. And finally, please take notice that it speaks of the seacoast of the Canaanites um, and of Lebanon as far north as the Great River. It's all up this direction. The Great River is not the Nile. Okay, it's the Euphrates. Okay, and that makes sense. The promised land that the Lord lays out goes more north than we typically think of it. All right, and uh, it includes, by the way, modern-day Syria and Lebanon. Is it any wonder that these battles are raging for it? And during David and Solomon's reigns, this area was indeed, by the way, Lebanon and Syria, part of Israel, except for part of the northern seacoast, which became something called Phoenicia. Anyway, we discussed a few weeks back that the Torah description of the promised land differs from the Ezekiel description of the promised land. And in essence, the difference is that in Ezekiel, the land extends a little further east uh, than is spoken of in the Torah. And I offered the explanation that Ezekiel's vision takes place during the millennial kingdom time. In any case, had Israel followed the Lord's instructions as they attempted their conquering of Canaan, they would not be fighting over scraps of land like they are today. Okay, They would possess all the land from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River and from the edge of the Sinai all the way up to Turkey. A substantial and rather defensible hunk of real estate. Well, from verses 9 through 18... Moses recounts how he organized Israel, how he set up a hierarchy of government and leadership. And we're not going to go into detail, but it's informative how this does not exactly follow what we saw in the book of Numbers. For instance, in Numbers it is said that Moses' father-in-law, Yitro, observed Moses as the sole judge and arbitrator for Israel and the people standing in long lines from sunup to sundown waiting to have their matters heard. And so it was Yitro who told Moses that he needed to delegate authority and suggested a system to do it. In Deuteronomy account, Moses says in essence, he grew frustrated and exhausted from the judging process and he told the tribal leaders they needed to help out. Hindsight. And therefore, he instituted his secular justice leadership hierarchy, which would have involved hundreds and hundreds of men from every tribe. And even more, while in Numbers we have a hint that the people had a large say in choosing those leaders and judges, here in verse 13, Moses says outright that he told the people to pick, choose those who would have an authority over them. If ever there was a solid description and example of a democratic or perhaps better a representative system of government in the Bible, we have it right here. And then Moses says he took tribal leaders, meaning men who had inherited rights of authority from among the tribes, as well as wise and trustworthy men whom the people had chosen and ordained them as the leaders. So apparently Moses had input into this process and could likely suggest some men uh, and reject others as possible leaders. And it's further explained that these leaders at every level, depending on their exact area of responsibility, are to be upright men. Men who listen carefully and respectfully and they decide justly. Further, they are not to favor an Israelite over a foreigner or vice versa. They're not to regard social status not to favor the rich over the poor. And then there's this little sentence buried in verse 17 that really explains something both Jews and Christians have set aside, each of us for our own reasons, and have produced a tragic result. Those words are, Fear no man, for judgment is God's. In other words, Since God and God alone is the lawgiver, these chosen leaders of Israel are to follow God's laws, 
and they're to apply the appropriate repercussions ascribed to every violation. The consequences of following God's laws are God's to be concerned with, not these leaders. Men don't have to decide what is right and what is wrong. They simply must apply what God has already told them is right and wrong in his eyes. What is right and wrong in our eyes has little to no bearing at all. And it didn't have any to those people and it shouldn't have back in Moses' day. Let me put this another way. The law, the Torah, had to be given first before a system of government was established. Otherwise, men could not have properly administered justice. God's justice is completely wrapped up in his laws. His laws aren't mechanical codes and ordinances or a robotic system of do's and don'ts. Part and parcel within the law is the Lord's desire and call for mercy and love and grace and provides for forgiveness. Today, the Jewish state of Israel is almost completely secular and it has little to no regard for God's laws. So they have invented their own system, installed their own ideals according to their own philosophies, and the results are pretty apparent. Within Christianity, we have become divided into literally thousands of denominations. And unity and brotherhood is a distant memory. Some denominations are even denying Jesus as Savior, others as Deity, still others denying the written word of God as because it's in error, because it's uh, errant, or even giving, even saying that the word of God is really little more than poem and fable. Almost all Christians deny that God's justice system even exists anymore. And there's the rub: by setting aside God's law in the church, we cannot fear no man, for judgment is God's. Okay. Instead, our judgments are of men who use a particular denomination's bylaws and articles of faith as their standard, based on the belief that what we do is according to what seems right to our own hearts. And the results of setting aside God's laws in favor of what resides in our hearts are pretty apparent. We'll continue chapter 1 the next time.